Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This is a crowd podcast. Who's the greatest footballer ever? It's a proper argument. All the usual suspects. One little man from Argentina or the other. This Ronaldo or that one. Pelé, Cruyff, Zidane. You know the names, we all do. But there's another contender. One you don't hear as much. He only won 18 international caps. Never played at a World Cup. Never won the European Cup. But it's easy to say what he hasn't done. It takes longer to list what he could have done. So imagine this. The strength of a boxer and the touch of a ballerino. Playing passes others can't see. He tackles too. Hard. His shot. You see it once and you can't stop talking about it. The ball exploding off his foot and ripping through the air. He's only 21. Barely more than a boy but he's a leader of men too. Demanding the ball, commanding respect, bending matches his way. He's the complete footballer. A comic book hero leaping into the sports pages. His name's Duncan Edwards. He's the one. You need more convincing? Bobby Charlton plays against Pelé. He plays with George Best. He's a legend himself. World Cup winner, European Cup winner, A man who sat at the game's summit, who has mixed with the very best. And, for him, no one compares to Duncan. This is what Bobby Charlton says about Duncan Edwards. I'm not a person to dramatise things or dispense fulsome praise, but Duncan Edwards was the greatest. I see him in my mind's eye, and I wonder that anyone should have so much talent. With so pure a talent comes expectation. What could this kid go on to do? For Manchester United, for England, for the world. He could change it all. The present, the future. It's just when and how. And we never find out. It's all lost in a mess of snow and fire and broken steel on a frozen German runway. But those thoughts, they never disappear. Duncan might just have been the greatest footballer ever. Duncan collects a loose ball with his back to goal, swivels and surges towards the penalty area. 
Two West German defenders try and block his path, but Duncan barges between them. Another rushes forward to try and tackle him. Duncan swerves round him, the ball on his toes, and then he lets go. His thighs, wide as tree trunks, snap his laces into the back of the ball. His shot streaks into the bottom corner of the West German net, faster than cameras can follow. Duncan jogs back towards halfway. His England teammates slap his back in congratulations. It's 1956. West Germany are world champions. Duncan's only 19, and the world's there at his feet. All Duncan's past has been pointing towards this moment. He's from Dudley in the Midlands. It's a coal mining, iron smelting town, or was. Hard industry has fallen on hard times. In Dudley now, the entertainment's dogfights and drink. That's what breaks the drudgery. Life's tough. Life's also fragile. Duncan's born into the Great Depression. He grows up in fear of falling Nazi bombs. As a ten-year-old, he loses his baby sister to meningitis. As a teenager, he's still swapping ration book stamps for shopping. Troubles like those break people. Duncan? He thrives in 20-a-side games on waste grounds. He grows big. In the middle of all that scarcity, he's a rarity. A barrel of a boy, broad-chested and thick-limbed. Aged 14, he stands at 5 foot 8 and weighs nearly 11 stone. By post-war standards, they're massive numbers. He packs power and pace, and grace too. Duncan's not just one of the Midlands' most promising footballers. He's a star of his school's Morris dancing troupe. At regional championships, he hops in and out of formation, bells on his ankles, handkerchiefs in hand, a cruiserweight blessed with a featherlight step. The footwork, the balance, the determination, the power. All of Duncan's Dudley past comes together in that goal in Berlin. And as the ball hits the net, you see a future as well. It's an away match, but a home atmosphere. Nearly half of the 90,000-strong crowd are British soldiers. After World War II, the Olympic Stadium, where Adolf Hitler had lauded it over the 1936 Games, becomes their base in occupied Berlin. It's boozy cheers and shouts and the clatter of wooden rattles. All that noise. But it's a time of national self-doubt too. England's where football's rules were set down. The Football Association think they're the guardians of the game, the owners, fathers. The English national team are meant to be the best in the world. They must be. It's a birthright, the natural order of things. But as football travels the world, obsesses kids, men, nations, that myth's blown away. England didn't enter the first three World Cups. Too grubby, too gimmicky, too professional. That's what the Guardians think. When they finally do in 1950, they lose to the United States in maybe the greatest shock of all time. Three years later, a quick, clever Hungary team walk out of Wembley with a 6-3 win. And if England are losing the football, Britain's losing the peacetime. The Second World War has ended the old age of empires. India demands independence and gets it. Trouble brews in the Middle East, the Far East. 
While the United States and the USSR wage a cold war of culture and philosophy and economics, an exhausted, near-bankrupt Britain looks on from the sidelines. Its influence shrinking, superiority shaken, all those assumptions undermined. And then, there's Duncan. Duncan gliding through the world champion's defence. Duncan scoring the first goal in a 3-1 win. Duncan carried off the pitch by British soldiers. There's a crop of outstanding young Manchester United players, but he's the finest. A teenager with composure, authority and excellence. A young man to put England back on the top of the world. Duncan poses with his foot resting on the dressing room bench. His Man United shirt, sleeves rolled up to the elbows, hangs loose from his wide frame. His brill-creamed hair swept back off his forehead. He adjusts the laces on his lightweight boot, the logo pointing to the camera. Then he gives the photographer an awkward smile. Click. The shutter snaps. And that's the moment. Frozen forever. Duncan isn't a prospect anymore. He's arrived. A couple of months earlier, when he's 21, he's third in the Ballon d'Or, the award for Europe's best footballer. United are the first English side to enter the European Cup, and Duncan drives them to the semi-finals. Around Europe, people are taking notice. A treaty is signed in Rome. It's about freeing up labour, easing the flow of money, opening up markets around Europe, and there's certainly a market for Duncan. Italian clubs are apparently preparing big bids. In England, there's a wage cap, £17 a week. Not much more than the average working man makes. In Italy, the pay matches the profile. The bonuses are worth hundreds of pounds, signing on fees in the thousands. Duncan doesn't exactly rule out the possibility. You wouldn't. There's the lure of Lyra, but there's also the call of adventure. Air travel is taking off. Everyone's horizons are expanding. Duncan and his girlfriend Molly spend summer evenings on a hill overlooking Manchester Airport. They watch planes take off and guess at their destinations. They wonder where the passengers are heading and where their own lives and Duncan's career could take them. This is what Duncan writes about a move to Italy. Right now, there's been no official approach to me. I should regard such a situation as club business, and after they'd made up their minds, I might be in a position to consider it. Formal words. It's a formal time. For now. But even if he stays in Manchester, there's more money to be made. The wage cap might not be moving, but something's shifting in society. Teen culture starts in American diners and drive-in movie theatres and then crosses the Atlantic. James Dean smoulders on cinema screens. Bill Haley rocks around the clock and a generation of young Britons have a cause. Too young for adult responsibilities, too old for childhood obedience. They're chasing new identities. Teddy boys, rockers, mods, tribes around music and fashion you're young, you're cool. Duncan and a young, winning Manchester United team, whether they try or not, are cool. Poster boys for the new generation. On a pre-season tour of Germany, 
Duncan steps off the plane and it's all flashbulbs and adoration. A crowd of fans and reporters shout to him. Boom, boom, they call him. It's the nickname the German press gave him after his goal in Berlin 18 months earlier. Sports reporting is like that now. Once sombre, restrained, now the tie loosens, the hype spills out. And Duncan's a shooting star. He's the light. He's the natural thing to write about. This is what one reporter wrote when Duncan was just 16. Like the father of the first atom bomb, Manchester United are waiting for something tremendous to happen. This tremendous football force they've discovered is Duncan Edwards. But Duncan prefers the quiet life. He's shy. He loves the safety of a team, the confidence he feels when he crosses the white line. But the attention and adulation? There's no training for that. Duncan's on the front of packets of glucose tablets. Adidas are a German company. The German team wear their kit. They want Duncan to unlock the British market. They supply him with their revolutionary low-cut boots, featuring screw-in studs and thin leather, not the heavy ones you could wear down a mine. The future, right there. And the photographer, for the biggest football magazine in the country, makes sure those three stripes on his boots are in shot. He lines up English football's first young superstar, coaxes a thin smile and snaps his shutter, freezes that moment forever. The photos for the March 1958 front cover. It'll be on newsstands when United return from their European quarter-final second leg in Belgrade. To celebrate Duncan's climb to greatness, to anticipate what might be beyond. United's players gather in their hotel lobby. A crystal chandelier twinkles above them. Bellhops buzz around them. Conversation is muted. You can smell the hangovers, the smoke on clothes and skin. It's the morning after the night before. The sore legs are from a thrilling 3-3 draw with Red Star Belgrade, enough to take United into the semi-finals. The sore heads are from the celebrations that followed. Wine and dinner at the Majestic Hotel, a cabaret show, beers, a party at a British Embassy official's house before wobbling to bed for a few hours' sleep. The manager's Matt Busby, a proper boss. He's ushering his players onto a bus for the flight he's chartered home. The Football League is still suspicious of the new European competition. A late return might cost United a fine or a points deduction. As long as they stick to the itinerary, they'll be fine. A small, twin-engine plane, a hop to the German city of Munich, a refueling stop, and then to Manchester. That's the plan. The players sleep off the celebrations on the first flight. If that doesn't clear the head, the icy wind that greets them in Munich might. They head to the terminal building in search of a cup of tea while the plane refuels. One of Duncan's teammates buys a toy for his kid back home. As the players climb back on board, a few flakes drift down out from the grey sky. At 2.19, the pilots are given clearance to take off. The engine rumbles. The plane picks up speed. Sleet streaks across the small porthole windows. And the brakes slam on. The passengers lurch forward. 
the pilot has a problem. Everyone's got a problem. The engine is struggling to reach full power. The time is 2.31, and the first takeoff attempt is aborted. The pilot comes over the tannoy. He apologizes. Everyone keeps their belts fastened. Again, the plane accelerates down the runway and into the gloom. The pilot opens the throttle, more gently this time. But again, there's a problem. Just when the passengers expect to feel their stomachs drop, the nose rise and the plane take off, the brakes come on. The second takeoff attempt has also been pulled. The time is 2.35. With the light draining and the temperature dropping, the players return to the terminal. They're quieter now, unnerved, even if they don't want to show it. Snow is falling steadily, fat, wet flakes settling fast on the ground. The pilot talks it over with his co-pilot. They reckon there's two options. Stop over, tweak the engine, write off the day and fly tomorrow. The other option? Take a third run at it. Inside the terminal building, someone says the decision's been made. The flight's cancelled, they say. The team are stopping the night in Germany. Duncan heads to the terminal's bank of telephones. He speaks to the operator. He chooses his message carefully. Telegrams charge by the word. This is what he dictates from Munich Airport as the snow streams down outside. All flights cancelled. Flying tomorrow. Duncan. The letters are typed out, glued to a card in a Manchester post office, delivered to Duncan's landlady, a Mrs. Dorman, in a semi-detached house just behind Old Trafford Cricket Ground. But Duncan's wrong. The rumour isn't true. The pilot hasn't decided to stop over. Instead, he wants to make a final attempt to get back to Manchester tonight. The players troop back on board, one of the journalists on the flight says something weird. He says, sitting at the back of the plane used to save the lives of tail gunners in the war. Duncan quietly leaves the card stool at the front to take a spare seat at the back. The snow's thick at the sides of the runway now. It's settling back on the cleared tarmac too. The pilot's plan is to open up the throttle even more gradually, to coax the engine to full power over the full length of the runway. At three minutes past three, he opens the throttle, and the plane purrs slowly forward. He eases the lever forward. Inside the cabin, the engine noises get louder. Lights whip faster past the windows. More throttle. The plane reaches 135 miles per hour, the point of no return. There's too much speed to abort the takeoff, not enough runway left. There's no stopping now. Just a bit more throttle and they'll be able to pull up. A few more seconds. Clear of the slush, clear of Munich, into the air and back to Manchester. The pilot pauses, watches, and then shouts in alarm. The speedometer, which had been slowly creeping clockwise, lurches back the opposite way. The plane is going too fast to stop, but too slow to take off. There won't be another attempt. There won't be an arrival they're going to crash. The plane careers off the end of the runway, rips through a fence across a road. Inside the cabin, 
bags and bottles fall from the overhead lockers into a blind swirl of screams and shouts. The lights flicker and fail. The left wing of the plane chops into a small house. The force of the impact shears the cabin in two. One half of the plane spins off and collides with a fuel store. A huge explosion shoots into the sky. A thousand pieces of glass and metal spin. They tumble and come to rest. And then there's silence. Silence and shards of smouldering steel. Flames licking upwards into the falling snow. It's four minutes past three. And twenty men are dead. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts. Clusters of people surround newsstands back in Manchester. The paper sellers furiously hand out copies and take in coins. Back in Dudley, Duncan's mother and father huddle around the radio. At first... There are only rough numbers, no names. At a Munich hospital, among the white coats and starched linen, the answers aren't much clearer. Teammates wake from sleep or unconsciousness in different wards, on different floors. The quiet and cleanliness is almost dreamlike after the fire and fury. Who's here? Who's alive? Who's not? Some are in too delicate a condition to be told. Manager Matt Busby, the architect of this fine young team, is one. He lies in a private room, badly injured, unaware seven of his players are dead. Duncan's another. He's in a coma for almost a week. He wakes briefly, asks about the next game, but isn't conscious for long. He never gets a straight answer about the rest of his team. The man who knows is Georg Maurer. He's the doctor in charge of caring for the survivors. He's late forties and chubby. His kind eyes are behind large glasses. He wears a bow tie with his receding hair slicked back. And he's used to these sorts of injuries, this confusion, this fog of war. Maurer is a former army medic. He served on Second World War battlefields Seeing the horror, the carnage, the panic, the mess. Not knowing who was going to make it and who'd gone. Not knowing about friends. Twice a day now, Manchester stops and listens to Maurer. 
His voice, his clipped German accent, crackles through the radio speakers, giving updates on the most seriously injured of the survivors, Duncan and Busby. Maurer works tirelessly. He uses equipment he never had in the war. Busby is under an oxygen tent to help heal his damaged lungs. Duncan has an artificial kidney, an early dialysis machine, to ease the strain on his own. But days stretch to weeks. They improve some days, worsen on others, as the world watches on. Dr. Maurer bears the weight. In Britain, where anti-German feeling is still strong after the war, he's a symbol of hope. Can Maurer's industry and intelligence, his country's modern technology, save their lives? With Duncan, the chances of survival are slim, and they're narrowing. His blood, unfiltered by his damaged kidneys, carries a deadly amount of nitrogen. The artificial kidney cleans the nitrogen from his blood, but it also thins it, making it less able to clot. With his chest and leg injuries, a hemorrhage is likely, dangerously likely. For 15 days, Maurer's skill and Duncan's strength defy the odds. Together, they keep Duncan in limbo between life and death. But it's only ever a stopover to a final destination. At quarter past two on the morning of the 21st of February, Edward slips away in his sleep. His parents are now at the hospital. As the news is broken, his father stands frozen in shock. His mother wails in anguish and throws herself to the floor. Molly, now Duncan's fiancée, has a panic attack. Matt Busby only finds out days later. It's by accident. A priest, unaware of his ignorance, mentions Duncan's death. It's the first one Busby knows of for sure. That evening, when his wife visits his bedside, he demands the full truth. His wife can't bring herself to talk. She can't find the words for the young lives and beautiful team wrecked in the snow. Instead, Busby slowly recites his team list. For each name, he looks to her, and she either nods or shakes her head. Back in Manchester, England and Britain, fans of all colours grieve. For Duncan, for the seven other players killed, for the end of a team, for the death of a dream. But in a century that had already seen so much bloodshed, Morning is fast, it's efficient, the clocks don't stop for long. As Duncan's coffin is flown home, Manchester United are already playing again. Before the match against Nottingham Forest, there's a short service for Edwards and his fallen teammates. But the game goes on. As does the European Cup. As do Manchester United, signing players to replace the dead. A couple of weeks later, a magazine lands on the newsstands. It's the one Duncan posed for at the training ground before the Belgrade game. Duncan grins from below the title in a scarlet shirt and white shorts, football's hottest talent. But the bottom of the front page is obscured, 
a note has hastily been attached. In small black print on a white background, it reads, This edition was produced some days before the accident occurred. We hope that our front cover will be taken as a tribute and a reminder of happier days. It ends with a Bible verse. It says, In their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. As England go on to win the World Cup in 1966, as United win the European Cup in 68, Edwards is there. Not on the pitch, but in the conversations, in those thoughts. How he would have played his part in those triumphs, the trophies he would have lifted ahead of the others, the teams he would have beaten, the greats he would have surpassed. How Duncan would have changed everything. But for a few others, the tributes are less grand, the memories are more frequent, the loss never goes away. After the crash, Duncan's father Gladstone gives up his job in the ironworks in Tipton. Instead, he works in Dudley Cemetery. The open air and the fresh-cut grass, he tends the graves and he gives special attention to two. The first is Duncan's. It has a six-foot-high headstone etched with a portrait of him taking a throw-in. It has two granite vases, one in the shape of a football. Gladstone collects the red, white and black scarves, the flowers, the messages left by fans. He tidies the plot. He tucks in his son. And then Gladstone turns to the grave next to it. Caroline, Duncan's sister, his only other child. The girl who lived for 14 weeks and died of meningitis. The baby known by no one but her family. The little girl who left such a small personal impression compared to Duncan's great impact. For Gladstone, the grand commemorations, the big what-ifs, are always second to a private pain. Two children taken too soon by an impossibly cruel era. Possibilities never lived, love never expressed. Memories that belong to him and them, but will never be. This episode of Death of a Sports Star was written by Mike Henson and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Charlie Frost. For research, we read James Layton's book, Duncan Edwards, The Greatest, and Jim White's Manchester United, The Biography. We also use the archives of the independent and German newspaper Die Welt and the excellent englandfootballonline.com. The music we used is from our partners BMG Production Music. If you enjoyed this episode, there are more you can listen to. Try Andres Escobar, the Colombia defender whose mistake at a World Cup upset the cartels and criminals back home. Or maybe Philip Hughes, the Aussie batting prodigy who seemed set for stardom before one ball changed everything. And we have another series called Death of a Rockstar, which is about Freddie Mercury, Amy Winehouse, Michael Jackson, and more. Check that out by searching for Death of a Rockstar in your podcast app. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. 
a place where you belong. Hit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on! Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.